Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello again, folks. Uh, my name is Cadejo Jones. You can call me Cadejo. And welcome back to part two of our Punching Out year-end, year-in-review episode. Although by the time you're hearing this, you'll already be in the new year. Congratulations, you're in the future. Uh, so unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the plague, uh, Rich cannot be with us for part two. He unfortunately caught something in between the recording sessions. So filling in for him this week is Karen. Yep. Hello, everybody. Rich, I hope you're feeling better. Thank you for letting me crib your notes for today. And obviously, I'm still here, and Ryan is here as well. Hello, everybody. One thing I'd like to say before we begin is this will be our 15th episode already, and 15 also happens to be the number of people we've had as hosts, if my math is correct. Um, That's by no means the number of people who have helped in making this show happen on such a consistent basis from when it first started as an idea just a few months ago, really, to now. Um, And... That includes you, the listener, and we thank you for tuning in. Yeah, it's it's been a heck of a ride. Uh, so I think our first episode was like September 20th. Yeah. But we'd been talking and like trying to get this together for like a couple months before that, too. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really great that we've had so many people come in and help. It's one of those like, uh, you know, practice what you preach. We're, we're all about, you know, it's not the individual loan is going to solve everything. It's working together. And <laughs> funnily enough, the show has been a great example of that because we've had so many hosts like... <laughs> If it were, say, just me and Rich, and Rich was out, I'd, I'd be in the lurch. But because Karen's here, any one of us brings something unique to the table, but we also, if we're in a pinch, there's other people around to help and, out. And on short notice, yeah. we should add. Really and we are notice. the Punching Out Collective. Yeah. So I think that that's a really good description of who we are. For people who may be just tuning in, we have a rotating schedule of hosts with different combinations each week. And you can catch up on past episodes on iTunes. We have an RSS feed. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can add us automatically to Stitcher. And I don't understand all of the technology, but you can find us and our past episodes. Yeah, you can also find us on Twitter as well and Facebook. All your social media needs, yeah. really. Um, I know, Cadeo, you just wanted to give tell people about the sort of subjects we've covered so far. Yeah, well, we've covered everything, uh, <laughs> a little bit of everything, I think, in a way. Um, the first episode I was on, you and I talked about uh, free speech in the workplace and the consequences of the ability to speak out also means safety and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the f- what was the first episode on? The first episode ever? Yeah. Uh, that was about um, the first job, you know, coming out of college and finding yourself in this new you know, job, hoping it will be a career and yeah. being disappointed by it, which is an experience I know a lot of our generation has had. Yeah. We've talked about overnight shifts. We've talked about prison labor. We've talked about sexual harassment. Um, Rust Belt City. Yeah. Getting we've, downsized. Um, what it means when your city tries to attract um, 
thing, you know, corporate headquarters like Amazon and what those giveaways really, how those giveaways that they offer impact your day-to-day life as a city resident? This is a long way of saying, listen to our archives. <laughs> but, um, but it, well, I mean, all of those things, like last week, the, fi- uh, the focus really was on, you know, the past. The past. But so many of the episodes leading up to now... And part of why I'm like saying this is a year of review is talking about because all of those were on the issues, not only just from the past, but what affects us now. Mm-hmm. And just moving on to today's show, I think we're going to give an overview of some of the things that have happened in organized labor in 2017 and what we might expect in 2018 and the struggles yeah. that await us. So I think I'll get started um, looking at the mm-hmm. year in review. And I want to start by just talking a little bit about why people organize themselves into unions or come together collectively in the workplace, because I think a lot of people know a lot about unions, but a lot of our listeners may not know that much about unions, or their only frame of reference for talking about unions is uh, sort of the neoliberal messaging we've gotten over the last 30 years about how they're corrupt and they just take people's money. Um, So I obviously sit on the other side of that sort of argument about labor unions. Um, But I think what it comes down to is that when people are on the job, they do not have the same kinds of rights and freedoms that we associate with the United States. And Ryan, your episode about the NFL and free speech in the workplace really touched on this. Um, So what do you do when things are going really, really wrong in your workplace? To whom do you turn when the boss is sexually harassing you or abusing you in a certain way. And really, when you find out that it's systemic and that it's happening to everybody in your workplace, you want to get together and you want to have a voice in how you spend your day at work. And really, I think that's the fundamental bottom line of why people organize into labor unions. And you guys did a nice job last week of talking about how we need rights to be recognized legally even in order to talk to one another and make demands and ask for changes on the job. Um, So some of the things that have happened this year have been inside organized labor, and some of them have been people collectively fighting for their rights at work to the side of organized labor, sometimes with organized labor support, but not specifically in order to get collective bargaining rights. And so there's a lot of interesting things going on. Where should we start? Well, um, one of the ones that comes to mind immediately to me, and uh, thank you again for laying out unions. I, I do think that's something we skipped over a little bit. I, I guess partly in my head, sometimes I assume because we talk about this stuff all the time, people get the picture. But one of the places that's like the biggest and most volatile in terms of just like where the industry, if you can call it an industry, like where that field, that sector is going is media. So there's been this huge, huge shift, especially lately, uh, a lot of channels are shifting to video and what that ends up meaning is a bunch of journalists just losing their jobs yeah like they cut their staff to do the print thing and it doesn't work and there's been two major things that happened this year one because it's still ongoing and i'm really interested to see how things turned out and the other because it was sort of a setback well it was yeah a setback and it also personally made me think about where i'm going with my career and like where I'm training okay, myself. Okay, I'm, I'm on pins and needles. You start naming names. What okay. are you talking about? So the first one, the one that's ongoing right now is uh, Vox Media is in this big struggle to... Um, Gain union recognition. Or well, yeah. They're be trying recognized to, for their union. They're trying to form a union. And 
a little bit last episode we talked, I mentioned something called a card check. I don't think I really explained that, what it was. I just said that I'm going to get to it. Uh, so here's what it is. So the National Labor Relations Board, which we talked about last episode, is set up to deal with problems with unions. And they're supposed to be an arbitrator in cases, like it shifted to become an arbitrator in cases between employers and employees. Mm -hmm. Because of the way things were set up then, uh, you have to do the a union election through the National Labor mm -hmm. Relations Board. The problem is, especially with like the administration we have now, those take forever to go through all the official processes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of paperwork. It takes time. And basically, bosses tend to, even the ones that are a little softer on unions, tend to push things towards that because it gets caught up in paperwork and people lose motivation. So one of the things that happened in, uh, even under Obama, someone was trying to, some people on the left were trying to push this into law. What a card check is, is you go around to everybody who's interested in being in a union and you sign and you say, hey, I'm interested in being a union. You get all of these cards and if it's like the whole organization shows up and dumps these like metaphorically, mm -hmm. maybe physically, maybe some people have done this literally and physically, I hope so, is dump all those cards on the boss's desk and say, we want a union, you have the option to voluntarily recognize that we want this union. You mentioned card check being under consideration under Obama. I believe, in fact, it was one of the promises Obama made as a candidate in 2008 that yeah. didn't come to fruition. Yeah, it's that one. It's, whatever reason. Well, one of the reasons is because it came to a law and the law got voted down. I think when it finally made it to the floor is right after Republicans shifted back into power. It was called the, I believe it was called the Employee Free Choice Act. And basically, it was a way to legally recognize and enforce card checks being a valid way to form a union. That law didn't pass. And that was one of the things under the Obama era that was a, kind of felt like a big failure. So why is it interesting that the employees at Vox have demanded a card check recognition instead of going through an election? So the Vox, uh, the bosses at Vox were saying, we want to, okay, we get that you want a union. We recognize that you want to have a union. So let's do it to the national, the, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, and haven't really said anything since. Oh, they, okay. they keep pushing that line. The Vox, the the higher ups at Vox seem to be very opposed to the union and saying all the usual things. We're like, we think a union is great. Unions are awesome, just not here. It's this one of those is deals. the line everywhere. You've seen yeah. it also at BuzzFeed yeah. for another media example. So yeah. you guys are you guys are mentioning um, media um, conglomerates. Yeah. I don't know yes. what called, media sources <laughs> that often sort of support or report on in sort of a f friendly way on lefty politics in yeah, some ways. You could say uh, that. So that, that seems like that's part of the story here is that yeah. um, we're running into these uh, sort of privileged media conglomerates that um, give lip service or deal, maybe deal in the currency of lefty politics, but yeah. don't practice what they preach. Yeah. Well, part of it, that's definitely true. That's definitely 100% true. But part of my mind, it's not particular to just these media outlets. There's a lot of other organizations that try to appear progressive in one way or another. And say, yeah, we're in support of that stuff. Just don't do it inside our sure. stores. Sure. But the Vox recently, I don't have the dates right in front of me, um, but the Vox went through with a card check. They did it. The, there was a majority of the thing. And they said, you have a choice to voluntarily recognize this because that's how it works. There's no legal thing that enforces card checks right now. Right. But they did the card check. 
that's out there, that's sitting there, and it's whether or not the bosses recognize it in any form, whether they try to push for a strike. So in that way, it's a modern version of the struggle for a union. And I would just add, also happening currently, the Los Angeles Times is pushing for a union. Oh, I don't yeah, know I totally if they're... forgot about that one. That one is happening, too. Yes. Um, I don't know if they've done a card check situation, but um, they, like Fox, are pushing for a union at this time. And I think there's a reason why media companies are looking for union protections and a very recent example that you might want to. Yeah. Um, well, part of it is um, this is something just on the field of journalism. It is interesting and be a radio show too. It's a field that's constantly changing. And right now it's like sort of burning down in a way. So one of the reasons that there's all these pushes for unions is partly is because their jobs and their livelihood are being threatened in ways they aren't before. And there is a really nasty precedent sent earlier this year. So there was this um, series of local papers called DNA Info. There was the Gothamist, which I believe was for New York City. Mm-hmm. There was like the LAist, like DCist, Chicagoist, those sort of stuff. <laughs> is, it, are, is this online media or yeah. is it a print? But okay. One of the things that was really nice about them is they were very simple local bare bones reporting. Like they would go around and report on. Uh, law cases where a landlord was being sued for unfair practices, like local but important reporting, especially mm-hmm. from a left perspective, because it helps with fighting things like unfair uh, housing practices mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So a little while back, they were bought by a very conservative owner, uh, um, which concerned some people, but the paper seemed to go about the way things it was. They voted and recognized in a union not too long ago, and about maybe a month afterward, not even... Uh, the owner shut down all of the papers, uh, deleted the archives, just completely took the website offline. So not only were these employees without a job, like unless they had them backed up somewhere hard copy, mm-hmm. they didn't have anything to put on their resumes either. It's like your life's work just went out the window. So this was a nuclear response specifically to their efforts to oh, yeah. unionize. Yeah. It was a um, big just flipping the bird. Yeah. So I think that that, that really epitomizes to me, I mean, if I had to say what I expect in 2018, I think that they're coming for all of us. Yeah. And um, I think that the wealthy owners throw tantrums and have absolutely no qualms about destroying people. Um, the, I mean, this was specific. This wasn't like a struggling business that went under. This yeah, was no. specifically a response um, to the effort of people to collectivize at work. So, yeah, this is a unique case um, specifically because like the person, I can't remember his name. Probably, Tom Ricketts. Yeah. Uh, who's already incredibly, incredibly wealthy. He owns the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, the ad revenue and everything else, he would have been making tons and tons of money off of DNA and Gothamist. Without, he could just sit there and passively gain money from this. Which is pretty much what he was doing, let's yeah. be clear. But let's also be clear. He, in one of these cases we talk about capitalism being greedy, it was also such a message. He was willing to lose billions of dollars. He was losing potential, all this incoming in, just to spite people. If yeah. a capitalist does that, that's a... I can't think of, like, uh, the words I would use to describe it, I am not allowed to use. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm back in school right now to finish my degree because I didn't finish, and I'm steering more towards public policy than journalism because after that was just, I didn't think, like, I'm watching friends who are journalists 
have harder times getting jobs and all of this. And it's like, I can't think about this in the way that I was like, you get a career, you work for the rest of your life. I'm moving towards public policy because I like doing this stuff. I like talking about what's going to affect us next. And I think in a way, too, it changed my priorities. It was like before it was like, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to do this job. And now it's like I need to be thinking about how I can secure the future, not just for me, but for the friends that I see suffering, for my parents who are getting older, for my grandmother whose pension just sort of disappeared after Bausch and Lomb stopped taking care of their employees. I can just say as somebody who has a degree in journalism, I have, um, haven't made a dime in the industry. I see you know, people with real talent and oftentimes I you know think of myself as who am I to compare myself to them who also can't make ends meet you know trying to write about the things they are passionate about who are shut out of an industry that is as we mentioned earlier you know pivoting to video because if you have an autoplay video on your website instead of an article you can slip an ad that can't be blocked that's the Ugh. business model can and i just say i just want to read the news yeah. i just want to I, read the news I, and you know what I else i want to read i want to read a recipe i don't want a youtube video about how to make a recipe i just want to read it i don't know anybody who actually enjoys getting videos from the no. internet you know you have this opportunity to make millions and millions of dollars right through these yeah. these newspapers but as a rich person um your quality of life doesn't change at all if you shut it down because you're already swimming in billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. So the decision-making is on a totally different level. That's the power. Like, that's, that's the power that these yeah. owners have. And that's where Trump wants the power to stay and be even further consolidated. So you yeah. mentioned the, neighbor, the National Labor Relations Board. Um, he is placing anti-union people on that board. Yeah. Um, well, there was one thing before we go on that I was going to say just covering the interesting thing. In both of these cases, people are against unions, and it makes the difference. There you see laid out the ideologies of, like, say, the liberals versus the conservatives in a way, too. How, how do you mean? Well, consider we've got – okay, so we've got two examples of, hey, we want a union or, hey, we got a union. There's Vox and BuzzFeed and the stuff like that where the people are saying, yeah, well, we think this is a great idea that you want this thing. We're just not feeling it's right, whereas someone on the conservative side just flips you the bird and sets the table on fire. It's it, The difference in those organizations on the left is they're being forced against do you really believe in progressive principles versus the class you are in because all of those people are the people in charge of Vox and BuzzFeed, like the higher-ups, are presumably wealthy. So here it's like, yes, I believe in those ideals, but there's that instinct of business. Do and you think they really believe in those ideas, or do you think they realized over the last 10 to 20 years that there was a market of lefty consumers who would buy those stories? I Here's the funny thing. I think some of them do actually believe it, but it's whether they are consciously aware of how they are. Like, you can believe something. You can totally be like there's this cognitive dissonance there. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I believe I'm a real progressive. Yeah. Um, also, we're going to let it, this is a personal gripe with the Democratic Party. Yeah, we're going to let in uh, this guy who's in f like he's anti-choice. He's a pro-lifer kind of guy. We're going to let him in because we think we can win. You're not realizing you're, you're caught up in your ideals and you lose the, the reality of it. I think you're giving him too much credit, but I well, appreciate where yeah. you're coming from. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is some of them are – well, some of them are both liars. I think it's one of the – we're moving towards a time 
where a lot of you're not going to find those people who are waffling in the middle. I think they did believe that, and it's either they're going to go one way, they're going to actually start to be progressive and realize, okay, this is what I have to do, or they're going to go the other way and realize I'm part of this effectively ruling class. Yeah, I think I think actually, I think that kind of what we could call insight that yeah. you're identifying is the result of being called out and confronted, which is why... I'm always interested in people organizing and pushing those issues. So, I mean, you don't, they don't, neither of those media places have unions yet. So the outcomes, I mean, you do have people who are unemployed, but you also have really unhappy people at work with stagnant wages who are trying to get a union to come in and there's no union in there yet. There's, um, speaking of ownership, the LA Times is owned by this huge conglomerate named Tronk. T R O N C. Really? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't make that up if I wanted to. Welcome um, to the cyberpunk dystopia we live in. Because we're living in it. It's, and now the names are getting silly. It's an acronym for something that I don't care to name because it's Trunk. Um, they, and I think one of the executives recently, and this was only a couple days ago now, uh, had a contract where he gets five million a year just for being there at the same time he is opposing the paper's efforts to start a union for reporters who i mean for five million dollars you could pay a lot of reporters yeah. decent salaries even in los angeles mm. yeah i feel like there's this so i'm sorry i'm always coming back to these larger themes mm-hmm. um i feel like there's a real disconnect in how we talk about money and how we talk about union power. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, as I, I, I mentioned, 30 years of neoliberal messaging that's anti-union messaging, there's a difference between people who are demanding a quality of work life that brings sanity and a living wage and people who are defending their rights to just have gobs and gobs of extra money that does nothing to change their quality of life. If you earn $5 million in a year, what difference does it make if you earn $6 million? Like, what are you going to do with the extra million that's going to change your quality of life? If your basic needs are being met and you have a luxury car and a luxury home, why do you need more? <laughs> that doesn't, like, and so, like, we talk about people's individual rights to pursue profit. Yeah. But that's really disgusting. Yeah. I think that that kind of calling out yeah. is what's going to happen more and more in the coming year. I mean, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And th- that's why I brought up that there are these people who are sort of waffling in the middle. Because as things get tighter and tighter, those people are going to be forced to the wall. But from my perspective, you don't call yourself a progressive, whether you're a politician or a regular person if you draw the line at economic justice. So if you're pro-choice, pro-gay, anti-racism, but you don't care about economic justice, that to me, you don't get to call yourself a progressive. And I'm going to call you out. I'm going to call you out. Well, I think that's something I'm trying to highlight too, is the difference between the people who call themselves progressive and have like this idea of what it is. It's like, okay, if you actually believe those things, it can't just be on the issues that affect you. You have to believe in all of them. It, it's talking yeah. about what you're talking about. 
Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton called herself a progressive during the primaries when she realized that the term had some meaning among Democratic voters. And, and then said that uh, maybe 1250 should be the minimum wage. She didn't even commit to that. I know. To bring she it back had her picture labor. taken with Cuomo when they passed $15 minimum wage for New York State, except it's not $15 minimum wage for New York State. It's $12.50 for Western New York. And I'm like, why does she get to be on the stage with Cuomo when she opposed a $15 minimum wage? Yeah. But that's that's another uh, example of like how it's relating to us. And the like. honestly, at this point, it should be fight for 20 Oh, and it's just going to rapidly yeah. need to be increased even more. Let's talk about the fight for 15 when we come back, because that is also a big part of the 2017 um, labor picture and even locally here in Rochester. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back. Um, when we left off, we had mentioned that we'd be talking about Fight for 15 as one of the big stories of 2017. And um, as the year turns to 2018, minimum wage workers in New York will see a raise from 970 an hour to 1040 an hour. This is a victory won very much by the Fight for 15 campaign. Um, I should add that minimum wage is higher in New York City. The figures I quoted are for the rest of the state. It was part of the deal. That was part of the sort of devil's deal when uh, Cuomo signed the minimum wage increase for New York State. It was um, uh, ceding to business owners in western New York who insisted that that was a that uh, $15 an hour would be wildly inappropriate for minimum wage workers in our area. I hope you could hear the sarcasm and the yes. anger, um, anger in my voice. Well, <laughs> 15 isn't going to happen until, when is it, 21, 2022, Something 2020? Like <sighs> one of those years. So it's, it's a gradual process to begin with, and in the rest of New York State, it is a smaller gradual process. Yeah. You know, it's the sad thing, too, when we said that it was raging from 970 to 1040. As someone who works at minimum wage right now, my mind was like, Oh man, oh man, my pay is going up. Like, it's, I'm that excited about 70 cents. And that's just the way, like, that's the way it is. You get, you end up getting excited over these little, little gains. Mm -hmm. And it's such a toxic thing because, no, I should be pissed that it's only going up by 70 cents. I should be upset that, you know, I can barely, like, in the jobs I work, I can barely afford to stay ahead of my student loans. Mm -hmm. We had talked. Earlier about sort of the distinction between, you know, labor with both inside and outside of unions and mm -hmm. Fight for 15 has been sort of a non-union effort, yeah. a well, cross-union effort. Yeah, it's had a lot of union support financially, mm -hmm. um, which is important, yeah. uh, but it is not specifically at this point an effort to unionize minimum wage workers, but it is an effort to collectivize those workers to make demands, and they're having some success. Yeah. And $15 an hour as minimum wage has not been their only demand. It's not been the only thing mm -hmm. they've accomplished so far. In New York City, mm -hmm. they the Fight for 15 has gotten um, 
uh, law passed that allows minimum wage workers to voluntarily um, check a card, kind of like card check, um, to donate a small portion of their money to a nonprofit that organizes for workers' rights and to have that automatically deducted and moved to the nonprofit from their paycheck. Okay. Um, so that's actually, that's quasi-union quasi dues. Um, and it uh, actually supports, it's very supportive of further organizing for the Fight for 15. But Ryan, you said there are other issues on the table. You can hear locally from the Fight for 15 folks um, demanding uh, reasonable scheduling. Yes. Um, so I don't. I, if you have been out of the minimum wage job market for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. My first we, question is how? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're 70 years old and listening to this show, um, you probably grew up in a time when minimum wage jobs were full time. That's exceedingly mm. rare these yeah. days. Um, you probably grew up in a time when your minimum wage job had a regular predictable schedule. That's gone. Um, what we find is that employers are hiring part-time instead of full-time jobs, um, especially at the minimum wage level, that they do not provide predictable scheduling. And that wreaks havoc on families with children and on regular people as well. It's a real, I have a real bone to pick with that kind of scheduling. They'll have people work forced overtime or you find out a day ahead that you are working tomorrow or you find out this morning that you're not going to work this afternoon even though you thought you were going to. You can't, like in the old days they'd say just take another part-time job and then you have enough to live on. You can't do that with unpredictable scheduling. Yeah, yeah now you're working three part-time jobs and you're probably working, in some cases, Cases. I know people are working 50, 60 hour weeks across three jobs. Yeah. Uh, that unfair scheduling thing, too. I talked about FedEx last time, but like the growth of their idea of independent contractors, um, in my mind, it's part of what led to what we call the gig economy, like yeah. Uber and all of those. And those are ones where they don't like Uber's the worst example of that, that sort of business model. Because it's not only are your hours unreliable, they pushed it to it's your job to find things. Yeah. You're, you're at the beck and call of other people. You're dependent on everybody else. You're not dependent on this is the way the business is laid out. So they've pushed even the problem of scheduling. It's the ultimate neoliberal thing is, oh, the scheduling's even your problem now. Yeah, well, they also, um, industries with a lot of uh, minimum wage workers also use software that maximizes their goals in scheduling over any kind of, Anything that resembles a reasonable human, consistent, yes. Yeah. So that I, I can't explain all the details, but uh, you know, if you if you have somebody work too many hours in a week, you got to pay time and a half. So you could get a call not to come in this afternoon because they made a mistake in your scheduling, and suddenly you're not working this afternoon, and somebody else is. It's complete chaos for regular people, and um, I'm interested locally. Again, in calling out the people who benefit from this. Um, I have a fantasy that when philanthropists approach nonprofits in the Rochester community in order to give their money to <coughs> tax break, to give their money to nonprofits to, for example, uh, help with the graduation rates in the city high schools. My fantasy is that every nonprofit asks four key questions before taking their money. Do you hire as many full-time workers for the jobs that you provide in the community as possible? 
Do you provide predictable scheduling for your part-time workers? What do you pay your part-time workers and your lowest paid um, employees? And which zip codes do you hire from? High school graduation rates improve when kids have food to eat, a secure home life, and when their parents have predictable schedules for their jobs. This improves much much more important than funding a program to bring businessmen into the city to mentor high school students on how to be successful. Yeah. Um, so the, fight, the other issue that the Fight for 15 folks here locally, especially um, around restaurant workers, is the anti-sexual harassment policy that they're pushing for. Um, so that's, not a, that's kind of a no-brainer for most of our listeners. Yeah, which has sort of been the, one of the issues of the year. There's no way to talk about this year without... At least touching it briefly, but there's more and we have to say on it. It just, is a workplace issue. Definitely, it's an it's, issue everywhere. Yeah. It's a like it's a cultural and structural issue. And while the big the big headlines have obviously been in like the entertainment industry, it's like, I mean, we it's, Nadia talked about it in our episode when we talked about overnight shifts. Like abuse and harassment are everywhere. Yeah, I mean, and of course, in the academic world, the University of Rochester made their own splash this year with their the accusations of sexual misconduct and the accusations that they have punished faculty who tried to bring those that misconduct to light. And in fact, uh, two of the faculty have been named as part of Times People of the Year. Um, so uh, I think what you see is that harassment's an issue that you know, it crosses all these bounds. It happens in Hollywood and politics, and that's gotten a lot of attention, but it happens in service industry. It happens in academia. It happens right. pretty much everywhere you look, and the thing that links it is this imbalance of power between workers and their bosses and those who have access to lord over them. Yeah. Right. It's a sickening mix of patriarchy and capitalism um, that seems to be thriving everywhere. It's absolutely true that all of these things, as you said, Ryan, happen probably more uh, for women in low-income jobs and industries. Um, and so one of, the, one of the sort of pivot points for me or the wedge points for me in that discussion of the Hollywood women is when people come forward who were working with these terrible men um, and they say, I had no idea that Charlie Rose would sexually assault or sexually harass, I don't remember what the accusations were, um, the women employees, but I did see him tirade against employees in the workplace. And like, yeah, we knew that Weinstein threw chairs at people at work, but we had no idea that he was raping women in hotel rooms. And I think it's important to pay attention to where women stand in the patriarchy. It's also just important to pay attention to where workers stand in our economic capitalist system with so few rights. And I think one of the things that we see with Trump's agenda for 2018 is definitely just to increase that consolidation of power at the top and make all of us even more vulnerable to abuse, particularly because it's tied to our ability to get along economically. Yeah, there's this definite, like, you never, like, sexual harassment is such a horrible, horrible thing. And that's part of why the, the systems of power, like... I don't have any experience with that, so I can't talk about it. I have ex experienced harassment that is not sexual, and they get fed by the same thing. There's these systems of power. Like, I had a boss who just 
I'd gotten injured on the job because of an accident. And at first he was very forgiving. He even came and like brought me a candle, like a Yankee candle as a gift, said, Hey man, it sucks that this happened to you, that you're on crutches and all this stuff. But then after that's I came so weird. Yeah, I'm no, sorry, Kaneo, that's it so gets, weird. Uh, he's just okay. it, it, the individual he was that was just like his he was bad at giving gifts and stuff like that. But it was like, <laughs> hey man, I'm sorry you're out of work. It sucks that you had this injury, all that stuff. But then after like I was well enough to be back on the job, but I was still like walking around with a cane or crutches. There was a couple times where he came and he got really angry at me for not being fast enough. And I'm like, I I think I used a couple curse words, but I'm like, I am literally in pain to stand right now and I'm working because workers like the workers comp did not get here soon enough, partly because of your organization. You were yelling at me for the thing you were responsible for paying for. I am in pain to be here. Yeah. yeah. And the, I think partly because I'm his height and used forceful words, he backed off. But I left a couple months later because it, he a couple months later, he did the same thing. He did it again. Like he just yelled at me and he did it to other employees, too. It wasn't even yelling, you're just talking down very hard. And that's the system, that's the culture of management, that's the culture yeah. of business. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. So a couple of the things we mentioned earlier, the Janus um, Supreme Court case. So the Supreme Court is willing to look at, a, and they're probably going to rule to the right. Um, they're going to look at. Uh, it's a um, it's a right to work case, really. It's a case that looks at whether public employees can be required to pay dues into their unions in any state, and this is already the case in right to work states that. You know, they can't be required to pay dues into a union, though the union has to represent them all the same. Right. Basically, what Janice threatens to do, the court could, in theory, make right to work the law of the land, at least in the public sector. And this would defund and defang public sector unions in a way that we've seen in Wisconsin and in some other states already. Well, yeah, and another news story for 2017 is um, Indiana's effort following um, Scott Walker in Wisconsin to require unions to be to have a union election to vote on whether to be in the union anymore or not every contract period. So typically uh, workers fight to have a union like they're doing at Vox and it takes years to get the union recognized. And then it takes it can take years to get your first contract in place. And the contract will typically run three to five years. Um, at the end of that period, normally you go into contract negotiations again. Um, what they're doing in those states is saying, no, no, you don't go into contract negotiations again. You decide on whether to have a union or not again. So this is so there's turnover among the workers, new people come in, they don't actually know that you that the union is what got them their, you know, 40-hour work week or whatever the rules are that they're working under and you have another election. So that's another years long process. It's just absolutely a decision to try yeah. to decimate collective power. So there's two things there I think that are really to latch on is one obviously you defund a union like being against capitalism is not being against money. I think that's people 
what people don't understand. You still, people have transactions. Funds need to exist for things to move back and forth. Capitalism is saying, yeah, but it's okay if I steal all of the stuff that we need to get things done. Mm-hmm. Like people think, oh, well, the unions agree. No, you need to be able to, you know, pay to move strikers around if you have to go on strike. The union money goes to pay for food. If, you know, something's happening, like there's lobbying that sometimes unions do with that money. There's all sorts of, you have to, like saying, oh, well, the unions aren't going to get the money. They won't, they'll still be a union. It's like, it's sort of just like cutting someone's throat and saying, oh, well, they might not have any blood anymore, but they'll they'll still live. Taking (laughs) that money away from, like, taking the funds that come in and expecting the union to still do the same thing is ridiculous. And obviously the people making these laws know what happens when you cut someone's throat. The other part of this, too, is you talked about high turnover. And that is something that is a very pressing, very, very pressing modern issue that every laborer faces. Like the whole growth of the gig economy, Uber and stuff like that, or even looking at the extension of part-time or the right to work, what's happening is more and more it's getting pushed over to, it's not the same as what it was when you worked at a factory and you did that job. It's like with the unions there, you they can't replace you. They've made the culture is so that workers don't last, is so that you're not there to work a job, you're a, a piece in the machine and you, you're a replaceable piece. Mm-hmm. That's one of the other things I think that has hurt unions in the long run, especially harder to overcome. It's like, well, why would I join the union when I'm going to be out of here in three months, whether I want to be or not? I think you see these attacks on public sector unions, especially because of what you've said has already happened in the private sector. Public sector unions are some of the few that still have strong memberships, still have... Pensions, waiting for them when they retire. They're some of the few places that are still unionized, period. And you've seen these attacks, not just under the Trump administration, but going back during the Obama administration. I think his last year, there was a case that came before the Supreme Court that, again, had the potential to really end public sector unionization as we know it. And it was, it ended up, the Supreme Court was deadlocked 4-4 because Antonin Scalia was dead and public sector unions survived as a result on the basis of a lower court's decision that was upheld by the deadlock. Well, the, and then the newest appointee it has been um, primarily voting with the conservative, conservative side. Yes, yeah. uh, Gorsuch is very much expected to side with businesses as opposed to labor on these issues. So what happens if uh, unions are decimated, if uh, public unions are decimated? I think the organizing is the same. Um, It does become more difficult, but everybody... So when I say everybody's going down together, that means we all have a stake in it. And I think these issues are just going to be clarified for a lot of people who thought that they were in a secure place and didn't think that capitalism would ever come for them are going to realize that we have to collectivize and we have to work together. And we're probably, honestly, we're going to have to feed and house each other um, while all of this happens. So I actually, ironically, I take a lot of hope in that we will go down together, but we will take care of each other. Yeah, that's the the, the part of it, too. Like, um, I was thinking about when you were saying, it's like you were talking about pensions. It's like, my friend, like, prescient almost in high school, he said, you know what my plan is? And this was a man going into construction. He said, you know what my plan for retirement is? 
He said, I'm going to work till 75 and drop dead. That's what my retirement mm-hmm. plan is. And that's the reality for my generation, I think. And But because of that, there's in people closer to my age, like 20s, the millennial, so to speak, and even some people a bit younger and older than that are realizing it's like any of these protections that we told were there that we saw our grandparents have, Mm-mm. they're not going to be there. So we're already in our minds. We know we don't get to retire. We have to work together to do this. Rage is my pension plan. Yeah. There's some, um, you mentioned it as a millennial problem and we have sort of the advantage, I guess, of seeing these things down the road, but it's, already happening i don't know if you've seen these stories recently about these like trailer camps that basically follow amazon around we yes karen you discussed that on your episode but senior citizens are sort of a leading part of the amazon workforce because they seek out people who can't retire they they are like your friend plans too they are going to work until they drop dead Increasingly, you're having senior citizens hold jobs that could otherwise be open to people who are younger, more able to do them, and more maybe in sort of trying to start out their jobs and their careers and their lives. Yeah. It's the idea of Social Security, really, is to prevent this sort of thing where the old people were holding jobs that could have been used for younger people. Yeah, we're just dying in poverty. Yeah. yeah. I'm seeing more and more engineering friends do, who did what I, when I initially went to college, were doing, I was doing the same thing. So you're told, oh, get a job in STEM. Get a oh, job in engineering and all of that. It's, it's an episode in itself, and I'm hoping one we tackle we soon. Did, we did have one of our host teams did a, uh, talk a little. The first episode yeah. was also talked about STEM. Yeah. Uh, pushing people into STEM, bottom line, is about lowering the wages for those jobs and pushing women in particular into STEM is about lowering the wages for those jobs. But too, it's like, because part of it too is like you get sold that myth that um, if you're a good engineer, you'll get hired. It's not in journalism where we, like people think of science in a much more concrete way. But I know someone who's a fantastic engineer and he hasn't had work since getting his degree. There's places aren't hiring. He can't find the jobs. It's this problem isn't limited to science. It's not limited no. to the arts. It's not limited to journalism. It's everywhere. There, it's there is no meritocracy. I, I think sometimes we kind of romanticize and wax nostalgic about manufacturing when what we miss really is the union protection of those jobs. Mm-hmm. And unions historically did a less good job of organizing the service industry, organizing these non-blue-collar industries, and in the way that now leaves us, as the economy has moved away from manufacturing and the blue-collar workforce, Mm -hmm. a way that leaves us kind of in flux because none of the jobs that are available have these protections that we once expected from the workforce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially here, like even just before we recorded this episode, I was walking around this building and there's some old, there's an old giant drill press. There's an old lathe machine. Like we're basically in an old warehouse building. Yeah. We live in the Rust Belt. So I think too, especially here, that romanticized idea of production, but you want to go look at a place like, this is an episode in itself too, uh, West Valley down South of Buffalo, where there's just the one private uh, radioactive waste disposal company that has ever existed in the U.S. was. And it's now toxic waste that's just sort of leaking into the river. 
It's not as bad as it used to be. Um, take a look at Love Canal. Take a look at uh, any of these places where there's all this toxic stuff. That's what production and manufacturing brought as well with it. It's, it's the same thing with coal, like Trump trying to bring back coal. That was his big promise for the year, and look, nothing changed. Things have probably gotten worse for a lot of them, too. It's not just enough to try to save those industries because those industries had costs. It's not the production itself that's going to make everything okay again. If there's, you know, chemicals in the water and, and you're going to get cancer at 20 years earlier than you would have on your own. This is sort of a good transition point, I think, for another issue I wanted to talk about today, which is um, 2017, The one of the most significant moments for a union in the U.S. this past year was uh, the UAW's effort to organize a manu- Nissan plant, I think, in Tennessee, might have been Alabama, but in the South, and they were defeated soundly in the NORB vote, and it's sort of reflection of long-term failure by UAW and really a lot of unions to organize the South. It has its roots in, you know... Right-to-work laws, Ryan. Well, yes. I mean, you could call it the failure of unions to organize the South, but what we've just spent the whole time talking about is how many forces are pushed up against us in trying to do that. In that case, I think especially in the South, I don't think either case is to say one or the other. You're facing there, especially there's so many labor, like labor restriction laws up here that protect workers. It's state to state. Or there's even for the things that fail in New York, there's a lot of good laws that just don't exist for safety in the South. There's such a hostile, it's the, it's the perfect, well, it's the perfect combination of the two. Imagine it's like, okay, yes, it's been difficult to organize because of racial issues, because of all sorts of different issues. Also, it is ex- tr- they're trying to do it in the most hostile environment in the U.S. to try to do it in. It's this perfect collision. So what happened at the UAW plant um, or effort? The, the effort failed, and it's the second major failure in recent years. They recently were defeated in a vote in Chattanooga at a Volkswagen manufacturing plant, and What's interesting is you see all these auto plants in the South, and there's actually been what's been being called like an auto boom in the South because the manufacturing jobs that used to be held up here in the Rust Belt in Michigan, in New York, in Ohio especially, have moved South away from unions to places where, as you mentioned, there are fewer regulations that protect workers, places Mm -hmm. that have right-to-work laws, and... There was a Bloomberg magazine this past year, I think it was in March, where it labeled Alabama as the new Detroit. And the, (laughs) well, talking about, you know, the auto boom that's happening there. And the cover was a man with his shirt off and he is missing his right arm from the elbow on down. The um, article, I think the headline goes something like, you know, Cheap wages, little training, crushed limbs. Mm. The jobs that we talk about, the manufacturing jobs, are coming back to the U.S. that get romanticized and played up by the Trumps of the world. But the human cost of that is, the article goes into some really gruesome accidents that happen Mm -hmm. and the safety records are bad. And because the South isn't unionized like so many of the plants up north were, the end result is that these workers are making, I think the figure was 70 cents on the dollar compared to 
workers in Detroit mm-hmm. and the North. Yeah. None of this is inevitable. And I think it's hard to remember that when we live in the United States. Um, but I'm, I'm recalling uh, uh, the Michael Moore film, uh, where, do, where to Invade Next?, um, so if I you haven't you seen it, you should see Roger it. And me. <laughs> nope. Where to Invade Next as a more recent film. Um, the, the, the sort of conceit of the film is that he goes to different countries to decide which ones have the best kinds of policies for regular people. And therefore we should invade them so that then we can have those policies here in the United States. I mean, it's a conceit, <laughs> but he goes to, um, I think in, when he's in Italy, he talks to the owners of a manufacturing plant. And he says to them, uh, like he finds out how many weeks of vacation the workers get, which is a lot. In a lot of European countries, you get a th- like a 13th month of wages at the end of the year. Um, and he talks to the plant owners and he's like, listen, why don't you give them fewer vacation days? Because you could make so much more money if you just if you did that. And literally the owners were like, why would we need to make more money? Like we make enough money. Uh, And when he talked to regular workers about their vacation time, he was like, what do you do with all of that vacation time? And he was talking to a couple and they were like, we have sex. (laughs) Like that's like what, and what they're saying is we enjoy life. Yeah. When, when we have leisure time, we enjoy our lives. And that highlights it too, is the, Coming with the the damaged limbs and also the stuff I was talking about with the environmental stuff mm-hmm. is it's like that's where the romanticization happens. It's like it's not the jobs themselves. It's not the process of making cars. It's not manufacturing that brings these boons. The places where where people remember, oh, the pay was good, all of this, is where the unions were the strongest. And that holds beyond just auto workers. And I think it holds beyond even just looking into manufacturing. Um, you talk about Europe and some of the policies they had there. There was an article just this past weekend, I think, in the New York Times, um, and the headline goes something like, the robots are coming, and Sweden doesn't seem to mind. And it talked about the various ways in which automation, which is posed as a threat here in the U.S., it's, there are figures about how many jobs are at risk of being lost to automation, whether that's self-driving cars or continued automation in manufacturing or even self-checkout. But in Sweden, they talk about how automation, the gains from that go towards workers. They are seen as sort of a a way to get more out of the workers they have rather than a way to replace workers. Um, one of the unions talked about, you know, we will always protect workers, but we don't necessarily need to be fighting for jobs given the country's safety net and the fact that, you know, these jobs can be changed, but we want to protect the workers. If it means losing some jobs here, there will be more jobs coming if we plan things ahead and think about this systemically rather than fighting to fend off the machines in this sort of Luddite attempt to (laughs) preserve the status quo. I'm going to tease my next episode for Punching Out, which will be, um, Alfred will be joining me and we're going to make the case against work. Hmm? So I think Uh, we'll touch on some of these issues. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing to say. Like there's a bunch of episodes since we're coming towards the end of the program here, there's a bunch of episodes to look forward to. Like even just sitting here having this conversation, I've got one or two that I've thought up. I'm definitely going to be doing one towards the end of this month about 
information security and tech and talking about how that affects us as customers and also us as working people is the like the way data exists in the world is something what like all of my information is probably out there. Yours to anybody who's listening is probably out there in some form or another. There's no precedent for that in human history. So that's a thing to talk about in the future. But there's all sorts of, I know there's an episode coming up on freelancing. We've got a lot of stuff to look forward to in 2018 for the show. And, uh, and some things to fear for just the rest <laughs> of us. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I, there's not really a good way to transition to this, but on the subject of things to fear, the... Um, Trump Department of Labor recently rescinded a rule that prevents um, restaurant owners from taking from the pooled tips of their serv- servers um, and you know skimming off that pot f- to take that money into their own pockets. And there was an estimate where this could cost service workers something like six billion a year total. I uh, I. Along that vein, so one of the sort of what I'm hearing in this entire episode is around freelancing. Um, what I've learned is that a lot of restaurant employees are now not employees. They are independent contractors. Oh, a lot of bartenders are considered independent contractors. And so when I say they're coming for all of us, I mean it. We're, we're all going to be independent contractors. We're, work is not – work and pay are not going to look – the way that we're used to thinking about it. There's see, going see, it's funny because you say that like some of us already haven't been in that position. <laughs> There's um, well, I am at least app. 10 years older than you are. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be an app where, you know, one day you'll be a bartender and the next day you'll be required to be a barber and you'll be an independent contractor at both shops. That's the future. I actually think that also as part of that future, because as you said about data, that part of the future will be... Um, uh, every morning you get up and you go online and you hack an identity in a bank account just to get through the day. <laughs> Here's what my hope was for this episode. Here's where I think the show keeps pushing on is that's the future if nothing changes. That's the future as we see it as the course of human history is going. You have to treat every year as year zero. Yes, all this stuff has happened before. And yes, it's good to look and see where the truncheon is going to be swinging from. But you can't make the assumption that things will always be bad. You have to take everything as a fresh start. You have to say, this is new. We're going to change the future, even after the point at which it seems reasonable to you in your head, because we've all been poisoned by that neoliberal idea of the status quo. We have to keep focusing on where we want the future to be. We see the misery it can be. We see the misery we're already in, and we get stuck in thinking that laws are the only ways to change things, that unions are the only way or labor can organize. But as we've highlighted through a bunch of different things here, there's other ways to go about it. And some of them we don't know because we haven't tried them yet or we haven't thought of them yet. I want to end, although we are in a very, very bleak place for labor, is to say that it's also one of hope and optimism, is, is that just because things are bad doesn't mean we can't change them. Just because things are rough doesn't mean we can't come together. Whatever pain we may be feeling from the world we're living in, let it radicalize us, not lead us into despair. I think that's um, a fine place to wrap up. <laughs> yeah. I'm Ryan. Karen. And as always, you can call me Kadejo. This is Punching Out. I'm 
You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>